Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. We're well rested, right? We got an extra hour, even though you're probably saying you're starving because it's used to being lunch. That's just going to make us take better notes. Amen. So uh, if you're new, my name's Eric. You'll catch my humor later in the sermon. Um, we are so glad that you would come and join us. We'd love to get to meet you out in the welcome area, give you a gift and connect with you. Uh, also, if you're new online, we'd love to get to know you and help you connect to our church. I want to thank Chris last week for preaching in my absence. Uh, he had mentioned that my, my youngest daughter, Brooklyn, broke her femur. And so just very gracious uh, and thankful for the prayers of our church and support. Um, I know there are many worse things that could happen, uh, but in the life of a 10-year-old, it was a pretty big deal. So thankful for the church uh, and for Chris for doing that. I just want to say thanks. Uh, also, uh, Market of Hope, this is your last week to look through the catalog, see how you might help participate in the gospel going out uh, to where there is no church, to people who don't know Christ. Um, so we have cashiers in the courtyard to help you with that. Um, for all the introverts out there, okay, because the extroverts already have it on their calendar and outfit picked out and who they're sitting by for the church picnic, right? right? So for the introverts, it's not that scary, I promise. You can sit in your little area and don't try to meet anyone and I guarantee someone will come and meet you, okay? And they won't ask you too many questions, um, maybe. But here's my point. It's fun to get to know people, to meet. Um, as the culture is getting harder, it's even more important that you know other Christians, other Christians that pray for you, love you, support you, uh, and be a part of your community. So that'll be tonight here, five to eight. And then uh, just the last thing, if you notice the intro, you notice there's um, a flyer for you. It's going over the International Day of Prayer uh, for the persecuted church. Um, and just keeping in mind that there's people that are truly being threatened and beaten and challenged and killed um, for believing in Jesus. And it's important that we partner with them through prayer. Um, I think one of the most important reasons why is it prepares our hearts um, for the day that that might happen to us because it forces you to ask the question, what would I do if I was threatened? What would I do if my job, if my family, if my child? Would I stand firm? Would I yield? Would I change? As you pray through that and you say, okay, I got some things to work on. I have some parts of me. Um, and you keep praying for them um, that the testimony would be no matter how hard they hit, no matter how much they took away, that they held up Christ and say, nothing can take away my love for him. Um, and that's why we pray. And just the last piece I'll add is, you know, all of these countries are important, but just what catches my eye is I was in India, I don't know, I think six years ago, and I don't even think India was on the top 10 of persecuted areas. And it has just quickly rose and many of you saw Pastor Kieran at Market of Hope. And, you know, sometimes he comes off really serious and like, wow, why is that guy so, like, you know, matter of fact, it's because this is his world. You know, they're taking Hinduism, polytheism, multiple gods, and saying, this is our nationality. And if we allow monotheism, Christianity, one God, all the other gods are false, we will lose our nation. We will lose our people. So we must eradicate them at all costs. So he lives that daily. Uh, will, will I die? Will I get thrown in jail? And so we want to be mindful of praying for them as brothers and sisters in Christ, that Christ might be lifted high no matter how hard, and it might prepare us as we even look at the Beatitudes to blessed are those who are persecuted. Those are hard words to hear, aren't they? 
It comes through praying and preparing your heart to love him and be with him and thinking through what that would be. So we're going to pray and we'll, we'll join in, jump in our sermon. Dear Jesus, uh, we thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ that we get to walk with, that we get to um, pray for, that we get to send gifts to. Um, it's our prayer that they would hold fast, whether it be in an Islamic context, a Hindu context, an, an animist context, whatever it is, they would hold you high. They would feel the comfort of the Holy Spirit, that they would sing and rejoice as in Acts 16, uh, just thinking of singing hymns and songs and praising you, that no weapon, no torture can take your love for us and can change our citizenship in heaven. We are grateful for that. We pray you would prepare our hearts as our culture gets harder and harder to be a Christian, that we uh, would be willing to love you and follow you at any cost, that you would walk with us in that preparation. And we pray for your word here this morning um, to illuminate us, to challenge us, and to teach us and love you more. Pray for your words and not mine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are in Matthew chapter 5. And um, what we're going to do a little bit is I'm, I'm going to try to give you a framework on how to think through this so that you can see how all of this fits together. Now, what we're going to do is challenge you. So I need you guys to push that hunger way down, get your phones out, pencil out, and really dig in here with me. Um, because this is going to be monumental to, to kind of how you treat the Bible. Um, these, let's hop right in, verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. Uh, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. <clears throat> so what happens here is there is kind of Christianity becoming undone, and it's in, it's in two forms. It's sometimes people will come up and they'll, they'll find a, a weird passage in the Old Testament and be like, see, you wear woven fabrics together. Therefore, Jesus can't be God and marriage can't be between a man and a woman. And they'll just undo it. And you're like, what do I, what do, I do with this? And so then what the church does is it, it goes, well, yeah, we actually just, we don't even read the Old Testament. It's unhinged. It's not important. And so what Jesus is doing is he's making a very clear statement about the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, that it matters and it's important. And so what we want to do is figure out how do we think about it and, and, and how does that relationship work um, so that we're not confused. And maybe, even maybe, you can actually read Leviticus in your Bible reading plan and not skip the chapters, right? Because you're like, what is this? It makes no sense. So to get our framework here, we're going to go to Matthew 22. We're going to jump ahead a little bit. Then we're going to look back and we're going to tie it together. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. It says, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Does it say it's the only commandment? Not a trick question. No. But it is first and it is great. And it's important. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So he summarizes all of the law and the prophets. You can see through these two commandments. So what he's saying, 
If you actually look through what it means to love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, you can see how this Old Testament passage would be important or applicable. If you were to think through what it actually means to love your neighbor as yourself, you can read this passage and think through how is this applicable? How does it happen? Okay, here's our example. I want you to work through this with me. In our text, we're going to jump ahead here. I want you to see this. Let's pick up in verse 23. Here's his example. This is something you would read in the Old Testament. Look at Leviticus 19. It walks through the rules and the laws. So it has offerings and gifts that you'd present at the altar. So this example is very familiar. Let's let's look at it. It says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go first, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now we read that and it doesn't make a lot of sense and it's not really mind-blowing because we live in a context where there's a church on every corner. Well, where would the altar be in the Old Testament? At the temple. Well, what if you don't live near the temple? So let's say you live in Bakersfield and you need to go down to the temple. You need to go to the altar and you need to make a peace offering or you need to make a guilt offering or you need to make an atonement for your sin. Mind you, you don't have a car, right? You have a donkey or a mule, maybe a horse. And you have to look through the Levitical rules. You have to find the right type with the right marks. And then you got to present it right. And you got to make it survive the whole way there because if it dies or gets sick and then you have a bad gift. So you get all the way to San Diego. And you realize that you have anger in your heart towards somebody. Well, guess what this passage is telling you to do? Go all the way back to Bakersfield and make it right. Then go all the way back to San Diego and make the sacrifice. And then you remember there's someone else you got mad on the way. Then you have to come back, right? So now all of a sudden you're reading your Old Testament. You're like, oh my gosh, they're preparing these sacrifices. This is how serious God takes sin. That has to be a certain animal and a certain size. And, and blood has to be shed. Death has to occur for the covering and removal of sin. So you're literally seeing life being taken from an animal and it's supposed to cause you to say, man, sin is ugly and painful and costly and hard. And you're reading through these Old Testament passages, you're like, wow, the work of Christ is great because he does this for me. And then you come to this passage and you say, wait, it says to even leave this great work and go back and be reconciled. So all of a sudden, you're reading Leviticus, you're reading Deuteronomy, you're reading Numbers, you're reading some of these passages, and you're looking at how the Old Testament points to Christ, that he becomes, fulfills the sacrifice. He's saying the Old Testament points to me. You read through these passages, and you realize God really cares about sin. He's particular. God wants to be approached with reverence. He wants your best. Not only does he want your best, he wants you to not have anger in your heart. He wants you to love your brother. He wants you to think through the weight and the cost of your sin. And so now when you read the Old Testament, you see how it looks forward to Christ. This is why. How did we start Matthew? Son of David, son of Abraham. What is Abraham? Abraham's the one that God says, I will give you the offering. 
I will give you the gift to take away the sins. This is why John says, look, he's here. Behold, the lamb. Jesus is saying the Old Testament points to me. I'm not here to get rid of it. I'm here to fulfill the very thing it's pointing to. So when we lead the law in the Old Testament, it's like the ceremonial law. It's like, thank you that we don't have to do that. Thank you that we don't have to take animals and, and blood and, and, and think through cleanliness and rituals and, and disease. And thank you that Jesus does that. To think through, man, to, imagine doing that four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times a year. Think how costly that would be. Think how hard that would be. And so you're reading that going, thank you to Jesus that you did that because I could never do it. So he says, I fulfill that part of the law. And he also says, and the prophets. The Old Testament speaks of Christ. It speaks of Jesus. This is how Matthew starts, Matthew 1.22. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Matthew 2.15. This was fulfilled the Lord had spoken by the prophet, uh, Matthew 2.17. This was fulfilled by what was spoken of the prophet, Jeremiah, Matthew 4.14. Spoken by the prophet, Isaiah. So he's saying, look, the Old Testament points to me. I am continuing on the story, the line, the design of what God has done. So when we look at our Old Testament, it's not to be ignored. It's not to be forgotten. It's not to be changed. It's to see as one continuous story that all points forward to Christ. He's saying, I am here to fulfill it, to do all that it requires, to be the perfect offering that could never be. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. When God tells the man and the serpent, he tells the serpent, between you and your offspring, there will be enmity. He shall bruise your head and I will bruise and he will bruise your heel. That there will be a snake crusher, someone to defeat Satan. Jesus is saying, that's me. That's me. He's going to once for all pay for sin, make a way for us to be with God. He's going to succeed where Adam fails. He's going to succeed where Abraham fails. He's going to succeed where Moses fails. This is the Old Testament, right? You're walking through and it's like Jesus is finally going to do what no one could do. Perfectly obey God. This is why Matthew is so important that it opens up in the very beginning. God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. It's a father talking to a son because the first son was disobedient, Adam. Israel, disobedient. Jesus, he's obedient. He's saying, this is a relational deal. And I am, I am love my son. My son loves me. And my son's gonna show you how to do this. He's gonna show you how to live. He's gonna show you how to be. This is why you look at Colossians 3, 16 through 17. It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival, or new moon, or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance, the substance belongs to Christ. So we look in the Old Testament, and you're supposed to see this imagery of costliness, of paying for sin. I mean, think if you're a farmer, and you have to give your most expensive animals. It's taking food and money out of you and you're giving it to the Lord. You're like, this is painful. He's saying, that's a shadow. Christ is going to take the wrath of God. That is even more painful. He takes sin so serious. Jesus does what you can't. So when you read the law in the Old Testament and you're looking at fabrics and you're looking at distance and animals, it's saying, this is how holy God is. 
This is how holy is. All of these things need to be separated. All of these things need to be clean. This is how great your sacrifice has to be. You're supposed to feel the weight of that and say, I could never do that. That's why Jesus says, I'm here to fulfill. The purpose of the law is to show you you can't save yourself. This is why it says, for I tell you, verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's like, hey, you, Pharisees, Sadducees, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not going to heaven. Why? Because you don't love the Father. So the framework of how all of this works is that we would love God with all our heart, all our soul, and all of our minds. And the way we do that is through the first eight Beatitudes. We're mourning our sin. You're looking at the law going, I could never do this. I'm poor in spirit. I'm dead in sin, Ephesians 2. Then you mourn your sin. You see it's costly. You're looking at the sacrifices of the Old Testament. You're looking at Jesus taking on the wrath of God. You're mourning your sin. And then it causes you to hunger and thirst for right relationship with him. He's saying this drives you drives you to love the Father, to do what he asks and to do what he requires. And it's gonna say, now you get to look to Jesus. He's gonna show you how to do this at every term. He's perfectly obedient. Look at John 8, 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Okay, to fulfill, I mean, he's going to show you how do you treat your enemies? How do you treat people you hate? How do you treat people who are Gentiles and pagans? How do you treat the Samaritan woman? He shows you. How do you treat the tax collector, the prostitute? How do you treat Peter when he denies? How do you treat the, the, the Roman guards? And, he's, and they're, they're trying to kill him. He's saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's modeling perfect obedience. He's fulfilling what God intended, that we would do what he asks perfectly because we love him. See, Jesus loves the Father. It's obedience driven out of love. That love is driven out of an obvious need that we need him. That's why you start with poor in spirit. That's why you mourn over your sin. This is why in the New Testament, they're trying to teach the Jews. No, no, no. The ceremony stop. The ceremony stop. Why? Because Jesus paid for it. It's supposed to be a celebration. The weight of the law brings a celebration of Christ. That's how John the Baptist starts. Hebrews 7.27 says, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for the first, first for his own sin and then for the sins of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So if you're a Jew, you're like, wait, I don't have to do that anymore? Does that mean I don't need to listen to anything in the Old Testament? No, it means you need to celebrate that Jesus finally came and did what you couldn't. Hebrews 9, 12, he entered the once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So Jesus is saying, I'm here to fulfill the Old Testament and the prophets I'm the one who was promised. And so there's supposed to be this celebration, but instead he's met with hostility. Well, who are you? You're not doing this right. 
So Jesus is about to correct them. He's like, look, the Old Testament, it stands. It is 2 Timothy inspired for reproof and correction. Are we seeing how the Old Testament's helpful now? Because you're seeing those ceremonies and festivals, the intentionality and the detail, and it's showing you how great God is and what it requires to, to be in communication with him and what it requires to pay for sin and what it requires to, to, to make things go away. And so you're reading that going, I could never do that. And you're going, but, but Christ does that for me. It points you to Jesus. It points you to Jesus. And then Jesus said, I'm going to show you how you have that perfect relationship. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a quote. He says, the real meaning of the word fulfill is to carry out, to fulfill in the sense of giving full obedience to it. Literally carrying out everything that has been said and stated in the law and in the prophets. So when you're reading the law and the prophets, you're seeing how, does, how do they tell us to treat each other? How, how does it tell us to treat God? And it's like, well, watch, Jesus is gonna show you. You do the will of the Father. You love your enemy. You pray for those who persecute you. You're obedient unto death. You're citizen of heaven, not of this earth. So Jesus walks it through. So he gives this full conclusion now. None of it is going away. The Old Testament points to Christ. The sacrifices show us the greatness of our sin, the purity of God, and the moral imperatives show us how to maintain that relationship. And we do it out of love because this is the son with whom he is well pleased, with whom he loves. And you do that through practicing. So now he says, now here's the law. Here's what you need to do. And he prefaces it, right? Let's look through now. It says, for truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the great in the kingdom of God. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying, whoever shrinks the Old Testament, the word of God, and even the smallest, lightest letter, he says, it's wrong. It's wrong. And what's happening in their New Testaments, what's happening in our culture today, they're sitting here going, well, we're new Jews. We're smarter Jews. We have the complete Old Testament. You guys only had the Pentateuch. You guys only had the first five books. We know more. Look at us. We're smarter. We're better. And he's saying, look, you're changing the word of God to justify your behavior. This is why when they're ready to stone the, the, the adulterous woman, Jesus says, which one of, they're sitting there going, well, we didn't do this. Let's stone her. Let's kill her. And Jesus goes, well, which one of you has sinned? Whoever's without sin can throw the first stone. Like, well, none of us were without sin. See, now you're understanding the law. You all need a savior. You all need a payment. Don't change the law to fit your own narrative. You see, this is what we have in Christianity. We don't like parts of the Old Testament. We don't like how marriage is defined. We don't like how it tells us to parent. We don't like that we're forgive. We don't, we don't like how to treat enemies. We don't like that we can't lust. We don't, we don't like that you can't get angry. And it's like, it, it's 2022. We have smartphones. We, we have cars. And what's, what's Jesus saying? Don't change 
the smallest thing of what I wrote, and it's not going to change until heaven and earth passes away. For the Christian, he's saying, hold the line. Now, here's the thing. You can look at this two ways. That I'm up here trying to beat you with the word of God and say, submit. Or you can see that a father is telling you what's best for you to live. And he's saying the best thing you could ever do is to listen to every single word I tell you. And do nothing less than every single thing I tell you. And Jesus is going to show you how to do it. And I'm about to tell you the things you need to do. And the way you need to do it. And how you need to do it. It's a loving father saying, you need this. It's the dad, it's the mom who's saying, look, these vegetables are good for you. And the kid's like, no, they're not. They're terrible. You need to take this medicine. Cough syrup tastes terrible, doesn't it? And you're like, you're going to drink this. And you're like, how does it help me if it tastes so bad? You see, we do this. How can it, how can it be good if it feels so wrong, if it's so divorced from the culture? And so what you have is this choice. Are you going to change the word of God to fit your emotional narrative? Your emotional need for security and adaptability and to blend and to to receive praise and love from the world. I'll just change God. I'll just change his character. I'll just change his word and I'll mix the two. Jesus says, don't even mix, change the smallest of letters. So big words, aren't they? And I would contend this. I mean, you think he's going to walk through the rest of these. He's going to say, look, you think murder's wrong. Anger's wrong. We want to change that. Well, I have a right to be angry. You can't tell me how to feel. Jesus is telling you how to feel. So you can't feel like that. It's wrong. We're not used to that, are we? So what do we do? We change what it says. I should be able to do that. So we change what Jesus says. He says, don't get angry. Don't cheat. Don't lie. Tell the truth. Don't avenge. Don't love anything more than you love God. He's going to walk through it over and over and over again. And we want to change it and change it and change it. And here's the thing. There's going to come this apex between our emotions and God's word. And this is the only thing I can tell you. You're either going to kick and scream and say, God, it has to be different. Just trust me. Or you're going to say, God, this makes no sense. I'm going to trust you. Because this is what Jesus comes to do, to show you how to perfectly live out the law in loving relationship to the Father. He trusts the Father even to the point of death. Now, here's the thing. Here's my contention. I I think we just have to walk through just logically really fast here, think through this. I, I think sometimes we want a God who changes, and it's like, oh, yeah, things are different now. The Bible was for then. This is for now. And it sounds good because you can fit in whatever new thing you want to look on your screen or however you want to act on social media or whatever we want to watch or treat people and justify it. But here's the thing. We don't really want this. I want you to think about this. Does it excite you to think everything you're, you're teaching your kid could change tomorrow so it's worthless? Kids take notes because your parents think this. This is how you get back at them. Well, you change the Bible so I can change, Right? Is there comfort in knowing that whatever is true today is true tomorrow? Is that a good thing? Okay, you, I mean, you have to think about this. Or do you want a God that, that wrote a book and he's like, whoops, I should have wrote that down, sorry. 
I, I didn't take into consideration 2022 where they could do brain scamming images and, and realize that your choices are really just an emotional reaction to the matter that was formed in you. He's like, yeah, I really should have thought about that. He's looking at Jesus. He's like, yeah, you should have wrote that down. I don't know why I didn't. Holy Spirit, where were you? Right? Like, is this how we think the Trinitarian thing works? Is that a God you want? Does that God make sense? No, it doesn't. It absolutely doesn't. And, here, and so here's, here's what I'm getting at. This is kind of, that sounds absurd, but then, then we reach back and go, it wasn't a real whale. That's absurd. Oh, so, so God, God couldn't do that, huh? The flood, a talking donkey. Therefore, marriage has to be different. Therefore, I don't have to go to church. Therefore, I can hate who I want. I don't have to forgive because there's these weird oddities in the Old Testament. Okay, here's my challenge to you. Do you believe that God created the earth? If you believe the hardest thing, why are we changing the small things? If he can speak the ocean into existence, why are we changing his words and his instruments he uses to communicate to us? If you believe the greatest thing, then why are we changing the smallest thing? Is that a fair question? This is why he's like, don't change the Bible. Not even the smallest bit, smallest word. If you're going to struggle, struggle to trust him. If you're struggling to trust him, you can trust him because he sent Jesus to pay for you. And if you can't find a better reason than that to trust him, you need to keep praying. You need to keep praying. You need to keep praying because on what basis do you change his word? Because if he can create the universe, then he can communicate in a way that is unchanging and true. And just in case you thought I didn't have biblical support, we're going to go to James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is not up there reacting to us going, oh my gosh, what are these people doing? I wanted them to do that. I don't know what to do anymore. He's not changing. He doesn't change. Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. He's like, I keep my word. I meant what I said. And it is absolutely what's best for you. That's the part you got to wrap your head around. Because he's going to tell us. I'm about to get to that point. You can't be angry. What do you mean I can't be angry? She's not trying to chastise you. She's trying to love you. These are the things you need to do. I tried to tell Adam. And I tried to tell Eve and they didn't listen. But I told Jesus and he's going to listen. He's going to show you. He's going to show you what it looks like. He's going to show you why. And the grid you're going to use is the Beatitudes. You're going to be poor in spirit. You're going to mourn over your sin. You're going to hunger and thirst after Jesus. You're going to seek mercy. If you do this, if you seek that, you will uphold the full weight of what he says because your heart is to be in a relationship that loves, trusts, and follows God. That's what Jesus is doing. He loves, trusts, and follows everything God tells him. Summarize this and we'll move on. This is from James Montgomery Boyce. He says, if God has spoken to us in the Bible 
If the Bible is his word, then the Bible must be truthful because God is a God of truth. It must be reliable in all of its parts because God is utterly reliable. It must be lastingly authoritative because God is the only ultimate and eternal, eternally abiding authority. So when it comes to us, either our ability to reason will trump God's word or God's ability to be sovereign will trump our feelings. This is why it's so important that we're poor in spirit. This is why it's so important. You look at the Old Testament, you're like, I can't, I can't make that payment. I can't do that. I need Christ. I need to trust God. I need to follow him. It points us neatly, succinctly, and perfectly. Don't change anything. Trust him. Now, that's so important. Why? Because the first thing he's going to tell us to do is extremely hard. Okay? So what does it mean to be in the kingdom? Act like a kingdom citizen. He says, you have heard it said. Is he talking about the Old Testament? No. How does he use the Old Testament? The prophets have spoken. The prophets said. So what is he saying? He's saying there's Sadducees, Pharisees, rabbis who are twisting, changing, Yodas and dots of the law to mean things that they were never intended to mean. So he's correcting bad teaching. He's saying, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. See, so this is the Pharisee saying, look, we don't kill people. And it's like, really, that's your bar? Like, anyway, so 22, but I say to you, and everyone who is angry with his brother, will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That's harsh, isn't it? I'm already trying to change a, a Yoda and a Jot in there, right? It's like, well, no, 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 you haven't met my neighbor. You haven't met my in-laws, right? Like, come on, come on. There's gotta be an acceptance. There's gotta be, it's like, no. No, it's not, it's, not, it's not murder, it's anger. It's saying, you fool. It's saying, you fool. We, we look at that, we're like, well, no, 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 no. So here's the thing. You're supposed to read that and say, there's no way I could do that. I'm, I'm sinful, I'm poor in spirit. See, if we're practicing these things in the Beatitudes, it sets us up. We already realize I can't get to heaven. So there's no superiority in me. Christ does it for me. I'm thankful and grateful to his work, not my own. I mourn over my sin that I've broken this relationship with the Father. And then I hunger and thirst after that relationship. So then when someone does something wrong, my first reaction isn't, how could you? It's, I'd do the same thing. I'd do the same thing. It looks differently, but I'd do the same thing. It's that constant reaction of mourning our sin, being poor in spirit, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, having a pure heart that seeks the Lord that causes us to say, you know what? I get it. You need forgiveness. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. I'm not going to hold on to this. I'm not going to hold on to this. Now here's, this is why this is so important. This is, this is not God, again, I hope this comes through so clear because I, I know we're being very forceful and pointed, but this is a father 
telling his children, this is not good for you. It is not good for us to hold on to anger. There's a saying that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness or the judgments of God. Have you ever been in your room and you're just holding on to the anger and you're punishing the person and then they just show up at your house and they're like, that hurts so bad, please stop. And you're like, that's right, my anger caused you to change. Most of the people are oblivious to the anger and could care less that you're in pain. Is that fairly true? Oh, but we hold on to it. We hold it. Why? Well, anger is kind of the secondary emotion, isn't it? What's the primary? Pain, hurt. So we react to that hurt. Ah! And we either verbally, physically, or internally come out angry. Why? It's a defense to make sure that pain doesn't happen again. And we say, I'm going to take care of this. And I'm going to punish them. And I'm going to see you fool, you crazy person. So what are we doing in that instance? We're saying, God, not your judgment, mine. And what are we saying? We're not being poor in spirit. Yeah, God, I know I'm a sinner, but this is different. This is different. They deserve punishment. And see, what God's saying is this is going to take you away from hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You're not going to be poor in spirit because you're going to think you're better than them. You're going to think you're different than them. You're superior to them. Just like Pharisees. Look at that adulterous woman. We're better than her. That anger will separate you from God. It will destroy you. That's why he said this is so important. That if you're about ready, verse 23, to give a gift at the altar and you remember this, leave it. Leave it and first be reconciled to the brother. Then come and offer the gift. Two things. It's a brother. It's family. This is a family deal. Non-Christian's not going to understand this. It's a Christian. Second part. How would you feel if someone came over to your house? They're like, I hate your kids. I love you. You're like, come on in. I don't really care. As long as you like me, we're good. If that's your parenting style, we need to talk. There's something wrong with that. It's like, if you love me, then you'll love my kids. God's saying, you can't say you love me and have anger in your heart to your brother. Why? Because it means you don't understand how I have loved you. And therefore, you are not willing to love me. Because you don't trust me. You don't trust that God will be the actor of judgment and vengeance on that person. This is why over and over, it says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. We say, no, God, my anger, my will, they will suffer. You're not poor in spirit. You're not mourning your sin. You're not hungering, thirsting for righteousness. It's destroying you. And then the worship you offer to God, it's fake. Read Amos, read Malachi, it's fake. You're like, oh, God, I love you. I just hate your creation. I just don't trust your judgments. I just don't think you're doing a good job. I'll handle it. So I have this bifurcated relationship where I do God's work, but I love him, so I feel good about myself. So I says, leave the gift, make it right. What's he getting at? He's saying, child of God, it's in your best interest to deal with anger quickly. Look at how it ends. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to him to court. 
lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge the guard and you be put into prison. He's saying, deal with it quickly before it becomes a thing and a bigger thing and a bigger thing and a bigger thing. And then it's rolling down a hill going so fast you can't stop it. And you find yourself in a prison of hatred and anger. And it controls you and it manipulates you. And you don't even know what to do because you need it so bad. Because if you lose it, you feel like you don't matter. You feel like it didn't happen. You feel vulnerable. You feel scared because that pain hurts you. And that anger is what satisfies that pain. And what Jesus is saying is deal with this quickly. Deal with this quickly. I am the judge. Trust me. I will deal with them. Trust me. So to worship means you go to the person and you say, I forgive you. And it doesn't even matter what they say. You're like, I've, I've been holding this against you. I forgive you. And if you're a Christian, you understand what that means, don't you? You've been holding something and you're letting it go. And this is, then you can go to the Father and then you can worship. You can, you can give a gift and offering. Say, God, I trust you to deal with that person. I trust you to heal the hurt that is inside of me. I'm not going to lean on that anger that doesn't satisfy me and just grows more and more and bigger and bigger. I'm going to trust that you love me completely and perfectly. And I have everything I need in Christ. If he can go to the cross and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I can forgive this. If you can forgive me for not loving you and betraying you, then I can forgive this person. See why we want to change the law now? See why it's such a big ask? That's why Jesus says, I came to show you how to do this. I came to show you how to do this. Follow me. This is what it means to be in the kingdom. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind neighbor as yourself. Some questions for us to think through. First question. Um, sorry. First question for us to think through. Right, here we go. Are there parts of the Bible you ignore or consider not relevant? This would be removing the jot or tittle. Is there something you're just like, I don't like that. How can you work on trusting God in all of his words? Because it's better for us when you're at that, that break in the road to say, my emotions don't match God's words. To say, I'm going to trust God's word. Because it's meant to sustain us until Jesus comes back. That's what it says. That's what it says. So how can I work on that too? Where is there anger in your heart? And how can you work on releasing that to God? How can you work saying, God, I know my anger is not accomplishing your purposes. And I want it and I need it so bad. Please take it. Please heal my heart, heal my pain, heal my hurt. Because you've told me not to do that and I'm trusting you that it's not good for me. Three, is there someone you need to make things right with? And I get it. The thought of doing that now might make you angry. That's why you need to start praying. That's why you need to be poor in spirit. That's why you need to mourn your sin. That's why you need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's why you need to be merciful. That's why you need to have a pure heart. That's why you need to be a peacemaker. See, God shows us this is how you prepare the heart to do the things I'm about to ask you to do. You interact with me in this way, Beatitudes. It will bless you. It will help you. Four, how can anger ruin your life and the life of others? 
because it utterly separates us from trusting the judgments of God. It fools us into thinking that our sin is less than the other person's. And it diminishes what Jesus did on the cross for our sin as if our sin is somehow less than their sin and they deserve worse and deserve less than we do. That's damaging, don't you think? So damaging. That's why when you read this, it's not like, oh, that's so mean. It's like, wow, God's so specific. Thank you. You're warning me of the things that will ruin me. Five, why is anger equal to murder in the eyes of God? Because it's the intent to destroy, whether emotional or physical. And God says, no, it's bad. Murder never works out well in the Old Testament for somebody, does it? doesn't. That's why even back to it says, in faith, they trust. Trust the Father. When they take it into their own hands, it never works out. Trust the Father's judgment. He loves you. He sent Christ to die for you. Follow his obedience. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you and we trust you uh, for your word. And it's my prayer that we wouldn't change one iota or dot that we would trust you completely, that you know what's best, that we would follow you at all costs, that we would love our neighbor because we love you, that we would forgive people because we see how you've forgiven us. It's my prayer that we would walk through this faithfully, biblically, out of love and adoration for the Father who graciously sends us his Son, to be the payment for our sin, to make all things right. That we would have gratitude and walk in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, This is a really good passage for us to transition to communion. Um, If you're new to LBC, uh, we don't think that communion is a, a means of salvation. It's rather, it's a symbolic act that Christians take to remember the work of Christ. Uh, Just some, some, Important things, make sure you get the bread first so that you don't spill it when you get the juice. Um, That when we take this, remembering the body broken, the blood poured out on the cross, the wrath of God taken on our behalf. Uh, But why is that so important? It's important so that we don't have anger in our heart. As you remember the sin in your life and you realize Christ's perfect death suffering and obedience pays for that sin. It is so much harder to then feel superior and angry at someone else and feel like our judgment needs to be upon them because we're like, wow, God had mercy on me. All I can hope for is mercy for them. Mercy for them. That they too would be reconciled to God. That God would lead them out of whatever decisions they're doing. Uh, Communion is a part of that restoration in our relationship but it's also a part of what keeps our heart healthy, that we're dealing with sin. Uh, It's a time maybe if you have anger in your heart that you repent of it and give it to the Lord and say, God, I'm done carrying this. It's destroying my marriage. It's destroying my parenting. It's destroying my family relationships. It's destroying my work. It's destroying everything. I'm gonna give it to you. I trust you. I trust your judgments. I trust your work. Communion is that time. Come. Don't feel rushed. I'm going to pray. And and then after a while, John's going to come up and he's going to lead us in worship. 
Because for some of us, you're gonna walk through your sin, you're gonna realize you're forgiven, and there needs to be a response to that. Jesus, thank you. The Old Testament's pointing to this. That's why John the Baptist is like, behold the lamb. He's, he's excited. Sins are paid for. Christ is here. Savior's come. Uh, but for some of you, you might need to just sit and keep praying and thinking and working through and giving it over to God and asking him to forgive you and just working that through. Stay as long as you need and pray that through with the Father. He'll forgive you. He loves you. He sent Christ to die for you. He has a better way for you. Surrender that in this time. So I'm gonna pray. You take that at your own time and your own timing. And then if, uh, if you're ready, we'll respond in worship. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus and his work on the cross. Um, it's our prayer that we would just meet you now. Remember your body broken, your blood poured out, your victory over sin and death, that you kept your word from the Old Testament, that you would come and crush the snake, you would defeat Satan, you would pay for sin, and you would make a way for us to be with you through your blood sacrifice on the cross. It's my prayer we'd be thankful and grateful and respond in worship and awe for the work that you have done. It is our privilege to be your children. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.